In the late 1970s, a printer at MIT kept jamming, resulting in regular pileups of print jobs in the printer's queue. Some frustrated computer scientists wrote a software program that alerted every user in the backed-up queue with a message, The printer is jammed. Please fix it. Richard Stallman reached out asking for a copy of the faulty software, but he was refused a copy of that program. He resolved to create a publicly available operating system, and the open source movement was born. Over 50 years later, open source has become a coding philosophy practiced by millions of software engineers around the world. Why is open source so popular? What difference has it really made in software engineering? And what major projects are open source? In this episode, we talk with William Morgan, CEO of Buoyant and creator of the open source service mesh, Linkerd. William, welcome back once again. Thank you very much, Jeff. Great to be here. First question, what is your favorite restaurant in Austin? Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, I did move to Austin recently from San Francisco, which I never thought we would do. We were there for 15 years and definitely did not expect to end up anywhere else. But here we are. What's my favorite restaurant? You know, it's weird because we moved in the middle of the pandemic and did a whole lot of takeout. And then as soon as things started opening up, they started closing down again. And now we're back to doing takeout. So I actually don't have a great answer for you. Where are things closed down in Austin again? Our attitudes towards eating out have closed down. <laughs> Let me put mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah. Oh, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of drama. So yeah, I don't know, man. I go to like Uber Eats and I pick something random each time. And that's kind of my experience, which is really horrible because I know there's a lot of really good food here. That's really, that's been our style so far. Hmm. What's your favorite service mesh these days? Oh gosh, this is really good one. Linkerd, have you heard of it? <laughs> I've heard of it. I hear it's lightweight. I hear it comes with a uh, social network for your services. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. When one service wants to recruit another service, you know, it uses LinkedIn. It makes a fr- it's a friend request, right? It makes a friend request to the other service. Yeah, I want to send you some friendly HTTP traffic for you for you to deal with for me. Yeah, no, Linkerd. That's that's the best one, and my favorite. I think we did our first show five years ago. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was five years ago. Or, yeah, because you did your first round April 22nd, 2015. My first show was July 15th, 2015. And I think our first show was like a year into my podcast, which was, that was July 2016, roughly. I distinctly remember where I was when it was recorded. And there's a whole lot of evolution that's taken place over that time. Actually, here's a question. How much code remains from what buoyant was five years ago yeah that's a, that's a great question so on the linkerd side we went through this big rewrite uh that happened kind of starting in 2018 and so that that 1.x version you know so right now we're on the 2.x 2.11 is you know around the corner we should talk about that because it's super cool but the 1.x version that we had back then it's still there, you know, we're still kind of maintaining it, you know, um, so that code, I guess, remains, but none of that made it into 2.x. And then in terms of like, you know, the non-open source stuff, probably very little. Uh, actually, I think what I heard was that there's a little bit of code that I wrote way back when that's still in there for like generating, you know, cookie session, you know, randomized IDs or something like that. Probably only because people were too horrified to 
to do anything other than just leave it and, and hope to never have to touch it. And today, what is your, what's your go-to-market looking like? What, like? what are you spending your time on? Is it like sales and marketing, product development, closing deals? What are you focused on? My gosh, that is a cute cat that is suddenly grabbing my attention. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, for us, yeah, it's been, you said evolution. It's been a big evolution for us early on when, you know, when you and I were first talking, our focus was all around open source adoption and, and you know, how do we take this fledgling project? Because it was this like tiny little, you know, project with this weird name in this weird category that no one had ever heard of before. You know, how do we turn that into like something that people care about, you know, into like an object that's in their brain? And then you fast forward five years or whatever, and now, you know, service mesh, at least if you're in the Kubernetes world, like that is a category of things, you know, and Linkerd is definitely a, a word that's in your uh, in your vocabulary, despite some pretty you know in, intense marketing competition from from a very well funded other projects. Linkerd is definitely a word in your brain. So a lot of what I'm doing these days is less about you know how do we grow the open source community because that thing's very healthy and it's inclusive and it's engaged and you know and, and it's kind of self perpetuating. A lot of it, what I'm doing is how do we help? This is going to sound super boring, but how do we help? companies, especially large companies, successfully adopt Linkerd, right? And, and that is less of a technology challenge. Turns out, you know, and this is like why this kind of this model works, it's less of a technology challenge. It's more of a, gosh, we have this weird set of constraints that only makes sense in the enterprise and we need the service mesh to now fit into that. So that's mostly what I'm spending, you know, my, my brain juices on. What I really liked about the, the last time I saw your your product back when we could actually visit offices back when there were offices was you were taking what you had with Linkerd and like actually going back a little bit further Istio had done what I would consider is kind of an unfair move and sort of steal the service mesh branding from the market leader basically in order to gain control almost as a, you know, a cut out of Google. I mean, we, we had a pretty long conversation about this. I still pretty much feel about the same way I, I did back then that, you know, you have the CNCF, which masquerades as something that is not Google when it actually is sort of Google. And they're able to just tip the scales and, and make everybody adopt Istio while sort of like vaguely asserting that they're neutral by virtue of the fact that Istio is not a part of the CNCF or not a project or whatever. But it's all this kind of like fake gamesmanship and it's really appalling. But we don't have to talk about that today or we can if you want to. But what I liked was basically you were you were engaging in a strategy that that didn't end run around that, uh, which was you were building higher level UX based differentiation. You know, Istio is, was this kind of like clunky thing that still looks like a clunky thing. It looks like a big clunky enterprise product. And, I, you know, I called you the hipster service mesh before the show. That's a great place to be because everybody wants to build with hipster products these days. You know, you don't want to use you don't want to use Microsoft Excel, you want to use Airtable. You don't want to use Istio, you want to use Buoyant. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well that's a good that's a really nice way of putting it actually. You know, I think for us it was we had this moment of panic, I think when when Istio came out and I I know we've talked about this in the past. It's like holy crap, you know, here's here's this thing it comes from Google which not only has like a trillion dollar market cap and can like invest you know, incredible, incredible amounts of marketing and engineering into this, but also Google just invented Kubernetes and like Kubernetes kind of had this very 
public success story kind of crushing its container orchestrator competition. And the way that we emerged from that moment of panic, I'm like, oh my God, what are we going to do is we said, well, do we actually feel comfortable? Like we looked at Istio and there was stuff that we really liked about it. And we, but we said, you know, do we really feel comfortable telling our Linkerd users to go use Istio? And like the answer was no, there was stuff that we really didn't like. And, and we came out of that conversation with the, the idea that the thing that we, we really needed to do was, was provide a, a service mesh option that was simple. Right, like that, that was the challenge, right? The challenge wasn't having a million features, right? That was, that's the easy part. The challenge was if you are a human being who actually has to install a service mesh, you know, what kind of world are you living on, living in and, and how do we make that like a tractable thing to do? So just that focus um, on kind of the end user and having a little bit of empathy for them drove everything that we did from that moment onwards. And, you know, I guess that has resulted in uh, Linkerd having this very particular view about simplicity and, you know, kind of a very, I'm happy to see this like wonderful community of, of very enthusiastic people growing up around that because of that focus on, on them, right? It's the product focus on them. Am I wrong about CNCF being a Google cutout? I don't think it's really that like intentional. You know, I think the CNCF is part of the Linux Foundation and Linux Foundation takes a whole lot of money from Google and IBM and Red Hat and like all these other companies that do, do we know the distribution? Do we know the distribution? I don't it might be public. See the Linux Foundation's pretty public with their with their data. It might be out there. I'm gonna see if I can do do a little bit of uh Carmen San Diego style research right now uh while you're talking. But continue continue talking. I'm just gonna see if I can find how much CNCF funding so, you know, that has an influence on things, I'm sure. But most of the people that we interact with, with the, at the CNCF are like the, the TOC, which is the Technical Oversight Committee, which is comprised, which comprises like, you know, a bunch of grumpy engineers who like aren't in that world, right? They're like trying to make decisions about, well, is the project mature or, or you know, how mature is this project and what level, you know, what tier should it be and, and stuff like that. So I don't think it's that bad. It's not as bad as you make it out to be. It is annoying at times. <laughs> yeah, it's not like a giant conspiracy. At least not at least not one that I'm privy to. Well, then let's talk about a little bit more specific examples. So did Kubernetes actually win because of superior technology or because of marketing? Don't well, hmm, that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> and I I can only give my my probably naive impression there, which is what, what I think. And, and I was not like, you know, when this was going down when the whole Mesos versus Kubernetes versus Docker Swarm versus Nomad versus whatever stuff was happening, I was, a lot of that was happening while I was still at Twitter, you know, and, and we kind of came into that pretty late, you know, kind of at the tail, well, not quite the tail end, you know, that first version of Linkerd, the 1.x that I talked about, that, that actually, one of our goals there was to treat each of these as like an equal kind of thing. So it would integrate with Mesos and talk to Marathon and it would integrate with Kubernetes and it would integrate with Zookeeper. And like, you know, we, we treated them all as this, you know, as equal kind of things and provided this abstraction layer on top of it. And, you know, that sounded really nice at the time. It actually turned out to be horrifically complex. And, you know, we, we kind of developed a, a lot of empathy for our users who are struggling to go through that. But, you know, when we did, by the time we we kind of reset the, you know, reset the clock and said, we're going to develop Linkerd 2.x and it's going to be a rewrite, you know, which is like a scary, crazy 
bad idea most of the time to do. We decided to focus just on Kubernetes because at that point, you know, it's like two years later, Kubernetes was clearly the one that was going to kind of take over. So to answer your question, I think it was a couple of things. Number one is I think there was some really good design in Kubernetes. You know, it, it fit in terms of like where it fits in the spectrum of nothing is provided for you and you have to do everything yourself to like, we're going to do everything for you and, and you don't get a lot of choice. It sat in this really nice sweet spot that I don't think Mesos quite hit. You know, my impression of, of, and I cut my teeth on Mesos, you know, at, at Twitter, my impression was at least back then, you know, the answer to everything, you know, could you do this? Can I do this on Mesos? They're like, yes, you can write your, you know, write your own scheduler in C++ and like, that's how you do it. Yeah. Right. And then on the other end of the spectrum was like App Engine where it's like, can you do this with App Engine? No, you can only do these three things. Right. And Kubernetes kind of fit this nice, kind of this nice spot in that spectrum where the answer was often, yes, you can do that. And you can do that with YAML. Right. And like, you know, the result is that you have YAML madness today. And like, that's not great, but it actually, I think that was a big part of why, it, you know, it, it was successful was it, it gave you just enough that you could start building stuff onto it without having to devolve to like, you know, writing code. And for the SRE audience, especially in the DevOps audience, like that was a, you know, that's a nice sweet spot to, to be in. I think the other part of it was, you know, the Google name definitely was helpful, right? Like there's a big difference when a project comes from like a well-established brand, it starts off with like a huge amount of interest, right? So you get this big head start and Google was known, you know, and is known for it's like really good infrastructure, especially, right? So that helped it. You know, I think there was some real magic there with folks like uh, Craig and, and Joe and Brendan. I think a lot of the magic behind Kubernetes was those three beautiful minds kind of working in harmony you know, to make that thing work. And, and yeah, like I said, that's, that's my impression of why it took off, but I do think it was rare, right? Like I think in most open source kind of ecosystems, you don't end up with one really dominant one. And when you do, it's like this, you know, it's kind of this remarkable noteworthy thing. So coming into, you know, that world with that history fresh in everyone's mind coming in with Linkerd and then having like Istio job from Google, that was like a really scary thing. Right. Because everyone and I remember everyone was just telling us, oh, you know, Istio is going to win. It's going to be just like Kubernetes. You guys are like Docker Swarm. Oh, you like simplicity? That sounds like Docker Swarm to me. And I was like, oh, man, like, it doesn't, doesn't, I don't think that analogy really works. Now I'd like to go find those people and like ha ha in their face. But of course, I don't do that. They're listening. <laughs> yeah. Ha ha. They're, they're ashamed. One person is. They're feeling shame. <laughs> actually, actually, they've probably forgotten everything everything they ever said ab about that topic probably most of them have never even deployed a service mesh or care about a service mesh yeah i'm like i'm the idiot in that exchange where that's like that's been living in my head rent free but maybe they should feel proud because that actually kind of spurred me on you know i was like no well, it doesn't seem right and like i'm going to prove that person wrong so here we are <laughs> Sur service mesh adoption is still super early right I'd say in the grand scheme of things, it, yeah, it is. It is. Because, you know, even in the grand scheme of things, I think Kubernetes adoption is still pretty early, right? And like service mesh is trailing, like very much trailing that and, and kind of requires Kubernetes to get into place before a service mesh can really be effective, right? And that, that there's this weird symbiotic, well, somewhat symbiotic relationship, right? Where the reason why, and I, I wrote this, you know, I wrote a meshifesto like a couple of years ago where I kind of- I remember. Yeah, it was ground shaking for me. Oh, good. <laughs> okay. Wow. Wow. 
That okay, that's that's an exaggeration. It was it was great though. It was great. Okay. <laughs> I think we did we did a show around that time. Yeah, that's right. But you know, one of the points I made was that the reason why the service mesh is possible is basically because of Kubernetes, because it allows you to do things like, hey, I want to deploy 10,000 proxies and I kind of want to just do it everywhere, you know, and not have that be like an insane statement, right? You can do that. It's not trivial. It's not like, you know, control C, control V, but you can, you, you have that kind of power and that allowed the service mesh, which has this very weird deployment pattern of like, tens of thousands of proxies everywhere to actually be a, a plausible way of deploying these, these features. Have you looked seriously at HashiCorp Nomad? No. That, that's the answer that most people give. I haven't either. I'm going to do a show on it soon. But they're, you know, they're still working on it. They're still pushing it. They haven't given up, which I like. I, I like that. About, I think about, like, if I'm going to blindly pick a open source infrastructure tool from HashiCorp or Google... I'm honestly not sure which one I want. HashiCorp has such a good track record at this point. Vagrant, Console, Terraform. Is that all? That that's it, right? Those three. Those are the big ones. Vault. All of those are. All of those are extraordinarily successful. HashiCorp doesn't really seem to miss. Yeah, yeah. They have a really. What What is amazing to me is they have such a great product sense when they're building these things like they know how to speak to the engineering audience that is going to adopt this right that's going to form the basis of the open source adoption i also think they're really interesting from the open source perspective because the cncf you know for a long time was like okay these like multi-vendor projects are like that's kind of the model right that's what we want right that's how kubernetes is you've got you know a steering committee and you've got the maintainers and they all come from like these 12 different companies and HashiCorp like took a very different model. Yes, it's open source, but like, you know, it's open source in a very different way. We control everything, you know, and like you can contribute. That's nice, thank you. But like, we're not gonna let Red Hat come in and have a seat in the vault like steering committee or whatever, you know. And that was, you know, so that was like a nice, I guess, a nice contrast for us because the Linkerd model is also, I guess, by accident more than by design, is very focused around buoyant. You know, and 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 doesn't have the Red Hats and Microsofts and Google of the world sitting in on the on the steering committee and and kind of participating, which is another interesting topic to talk about. You know, while we're on the subject of open source, single vendor versus multi vendor, and tinfoil hat related conspiracy theories, um, I don't know if you've seen any of my campa- campaigning around React. Have you? Absolutely. What do you think of my perspective there? This is a perspective that Facebook is going to change it from underneath us? It's basically the perspective that React has become as important to the front end as Linux is to the back end. Therefore, and if you had a modern day Linux, it would basically be of national security level interest that this became a a big multi-vendor collaborative project, and therefore we must push React to do the same. Interesting. Okay. I had seen some tweets, but I hadn't seen those tweets. Yeah, I mean, everybody uses React, right? It's the Linux of the front end. Do you really feel comfortable with Facebook owning the project that controls all your front ends? Yeah. I mean, that 
I think that is a really good question to ask. And I think that's, you know, there are many related questions where uh, I think, I don't know if it's for the first time in history, but it sure seems like there is large portions of people's lives are often controlled, you know, at least nominally by specific corporations, right? Google and kind of the uh, monopoly on like kind of search, right? And like the basic way that people get information is either through Google or it's through Facebook, right? Like that doesn't seem great. No, it's not. It's not. It's, it's, it's actually, it's actively dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. Yeah. So, you know, I think I'm sympathetic to that argument. I probably don't have anything really intelligent to say. I spend all my waking hours like smelling service meshes, you know, inhaling deeply in the, in the service mesh fumes. And like, I guess there's a web, there's a world of websites out there that have front ends and things. You know, maybe if you can put me in touch with, if there's any Twitter OGs that are still there working on front end stuff, I'd love to talk to some people about this because they'd have a, they'd have a nice, a nice little dog in the fight. But but just just to pause a little bit more on this on this question, I mean, just ideologically speaking, doesn't it seem doesn't make you uneasy that that Facebook is is essentially able to layer in whether it's open source or not, they're able to layer in a piece of infrastructure that they control into pretty much every other prominent technology company. Yes, yes, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. When you say it that way, that sounds yeah. terrifying. Exactly. Exactly. And and by the way, like nobody understands how they do state management. So React hooks are this big mysterious state management thing that people kind of understand how it works, but I, I seriously doubt that there have been a lot of people who have gone so deep as to vet React hooks for any for for any and all security flaws. And I just think if there's one open state channel in React then that's a huge that's a huge problem. If you have if you have an open state channel in React, that basically means that there's the vulnerability to have your entire UI changed by rogue actors, right? And we we know how insecure the browser is. It's it's terribly insecure. So so it's kind of bone chilling to imagine a vulnerability on your front end that leads to your uh, to your UI being potentially open to I call it a UI attack where basically your, your UI can be changed by rogue networked elements on the page. Where does that rank with you among kind of a similar set of threats around like the browser itself? You know, Chrome has some huge portion of web traffic and, you know, and Firefox below that and Safari. And also on, on the other side, like Facebook's just kind of control of information dissemination, you know, in, in general. You know, the problem with Facebook is that they do so much that is clearly deceptive and mischievous and malevolent that they've shown time and time again that they're not trustworthy. And it's kind of hard to to encapsulate that. We, we really do need, like, legal proceedings. We need some massive legal proceedings to scrutinize the company for all the, all the, the stuff that they've done. Obviously, Google does its fair share of stuff, too, but... You know, you and I both know that Google is just much more well-respected from the, you know, departments of honesty and integrity of the internet, right? It's just, it's just, it's just widely known. It's widely agreed upon that, you know, Facebook's done enough stuff. And, and this is coming from somebody who spent two and a half years writing a laudatory book about Facebook. My book about Facebook is completely laudatory. I love the company. They're inspirational. I use their products every single day. I love them. I'm addicted to them. But, and I love React, by the way. But again, like... 
you know, I like I kind of like Coca-Cola. I don't drink it that often and I know Coca-Cola is kind of a kind of a nasty company in a lot of ways, right? Like they pollute places and they, you know, basically poison children and and poison older people too and it's just I don't know. It it's just like ultimately you don't really want Coca-Cola in charge of the nutrition infrastructure and you don't want Facebook in charge of your front end. You know, I I feel much more comfortable with Google controlling Chrome. I, I would not use a browser controlled by Facebook, right? Like, I wouldn't trust that at all. I wouldn't trust that at all. Yeah, you know? so for you, it's more, it's like the fact that it's Facebook specifically. It's not, it's less about like there's a single uh, I mean, I mean, Facebook has a, an internal thing called Push Karma, where basically the developers get a karma status based on how many times they push a, uh, like a broken build. You know, if you push a broken build, you lose push karma. It's sort of the internal developer social network. If Facebook itself had some sort of push karma relative to the entirety of the internet, they'd be very, very low ranked because Facebook has broken so many things for so many people, including sanity, right? <laughs> and including integrity. You know, it's just, it's so obviously a deceptive and, and vaguely evil company that, you know, it, they just, they need to be prevented from from controlling the internet infrastructure. Did this, for you, did this fight start like after you wrote the book or during the book? It came out, it came out of, so I, I went to DEF CON. I went to DEF CON a couple, uh, a week ago, a week or two ago, and I got massively hacked. Because you go to DEF CON to get hacked, right? You know, I took three cell phones, I took a laptop, and all my devices got hacked. And I went through some some horrifying, you know, hacker victim experiences, but that's ultimately why you go to DEF CON. And... I have theories about about how I was attacked. I was attacked again. I I described it as a UI attack. My user interfaces were changed on the fly in very creepy manners. If you can imagine somebody essentially taking over your native applications and changing, like repainting the UI in order to to horrify you in a targeted way, that's what I experienced. It it basically brought me to tears, and it sort of just made me realize that security is probably the thing that I have been underreporting on the most in the entirety of Software Engineering Daily. I've been focused on, you know, the cool companies like Buoyant because that stuff's fun. It's lighthearted. It feels like a game. But there are elements of software engineering that are not a game. And that's like in the integrity of your software, the integrity. And, and, and honestly, the not to sound like a conservative person, but there's norms, right? There's norms around what you can and can't do in the software community. And, you know, the Linux Foundation is kind of the closest thing we have to the cabal of super friends, right? Where, where everybody comes to the table and just says, look, what can we agree on? What can we actually agree on as, as a software community, right? What, what's, the Linux Foundation's got to be the closest thing. Like, it's not the EFF, right? Who comes close to the Linux Foundation in terms of impartiality, right? Is there anything else? I mean, EFF was the one I was going to suggest. E- EFF does not make cogent arguments around technology. They're like not engineering arguments. They're they're polemic. Interesting. Okay. So I just feel like I don't think Linux Foundation is by any means perfect, but it is the best thing we have in terms of arbitration of norms around software, which we do need as a community. And Facebook has just shown repeated violation of those norms. So we essentially need to bring them into the UN of software and put them under trial. And I think I think that includes, you know, forcing them to donate React to either the Linux Foundation or an independent organization that is like the Linux Foundation. And if they don't, then we need to fork it. And we need to just do a groundswell adoption of that forked React version. And if nobody else does it, then we're going to do it. 
what's been the reaction to this? You know, I saw tweets, but I didn't spend too much time. Yeah. So, so first, the quote unquote open source Facebook community was engaging with me. And then they just went silent because that's what they do, right? They're ultimately kind of cowardly. They can't engage because they don't really have a valid defense, right? They can't really tell me that their software is secure because they know it's not, because they know the web is insecure, right? So, okay, look, I grant you, the web is insecure. Therefore, if you build a JavaScript framework and you make it the dominant JavaScript framework, that's also going to be insecure. That's fine. But again, if you become dominant, you're going to get regulated. That's just how the way, that's the way the world works. That's what we need to do. And this is not a realm where we can impose antitrust laws. So the closest thing we have is force you to donate your product project to the Linux Foundation. You know, like say what you will about about Linus Torvalds. The guy has a kind of integrity and his foundation also has a kind of integrity. Interesting. Have you talked to the Linux Foundation about this? Are they like on board with the idea? I don't know. I mean, I'm just like tweeting at people and like my in, my inbox is overflowing right now. And I'm like trying to start some technology companies and just like. In the meantime, I'm suddenly getting waking up feeling irritated about Facebook. I don't really know why it's happening, but, you know, it probably has something to do with the pandemic and lockdowns and stuff also just irritating me generally. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, you see this company in your life for like however long it's been around, 16 years or whatever, and you just you just recognize at a certain point that this company keeps bugging me in various ways, you know, like it just keeps irritating me. And it doesn't matter that all of those irritations are legal and that I could technically opt out of all of these products. It just doesn't matter because the way that they're acting is so inappropriate and so offensive to me as as a human being, as a software engineer, as a, I don't know, as a person who sees their family corrupted and divided by their greedy technology. I just, I don't know, it's just, it's frustrating, you know? I don't know, Do you, does that resonate with you at all? You know, I don't use Facebook, so I'm probably inoculated in that way. I mean, why, why, why does Twitter? Why does Twitter feel so much more, so much more pure compared to, compared to Facebook? Oh gosh, I don't know. You mean in terms of like the ethics of the company, or in terms of the like the Twitter experience and who you're interacting with, and like how kind of kind of both. I, 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 it's like I know that both feeds are algorithmic, and yet I trust Twitter ten x more. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's an interesting. That is an interesting question. And by the way, for those who don't know, you worked at Twitter for four years. I did. Yeah, that's right. Although I was, you know, I was a, a cog in the wheel. I wasn't like up there making strategic decisions. In fact, mostly when I was there, Twitter was characterized by the fact that so many people would come and go that like, you know, there wasn't even kind of the staying power to assemble any kind of uh, long-term strategy. And maybe, so maybe that's the secret is that because there's been so much churn you know, among the founders and everyone else, no one has been able to actually enact any kind of evil plans. Yeah, right. It does feel kind of leaderless, for better or worse. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, Jack is at the helm, and he he did that after I left, and he's been there, you know, at least 50% of the time, and I have, you know, opinions, but those these are now the opinions of someone who has been out of Twitter for much longer than I ever was in Twitter. So, yeah, you know, to answer your question, like, neither I nor my immediate family members are actually really on Facebook all that much. So I get inoculated from a whole lot of that stuff. Obviously I'm exposed to react kind of everywhere I go, you know, so some of your statements are are worrisome from that. 
that's the thing. That's the thing is you're not on Facebook, but Facebook's on you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I, I agree we don't have the, the Chinese social credit score, but are we sure that we don't have the Facebook social credit score? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure my score is close to zero. <laughs> yeah. It may not be. It's probably not zero. It's probably either negative or positive, right? Or assuming zero is somewhat neutral. I think these are great questions. Yeah, I'm glad someone's asking them. And it's creepy that we can't answer them. It is creepy, you know, and, and I think it's an interesting class of... And by the way, who, who, who else can ask these questions, right? Is it really the software podcaster that's the only guy that can ask these questions? Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's where it has to start. Because most of the journalists I see who try to report on this, they get so wrapped up in these, you know, blatantly subjective arguments about like ethics and I mean, I guess that's what I'm doing also, but maybe they're just less convincing arguments. I don't know. I I, I just I feel like a lot of the journalists get wrapped up in the same kind of polemic stuff that I haven't heard people make well, I guess I guess there are there are valid criticisms people have made against Facebook, but I mean, I feel like the most valid one that you can jab at is React is not open source, right? And and that to me just seems like let's it, like let this is a place to start. Like I've kind of decided that that I'm I'm going to interrogate this company as a journalist if I am a journalist, whatever the fuck I am, but I'm going to interrogate this company because I wrote a book about them and I, and I I love the engineers there. I would even say I I really like Mark Zuckerberg and I I respect the guy, but I think he's. I don't know. He just seems kind of rapacious. And, you know, whether or not that's like kind of a joke, you know, you have to take it seriously because the guy has so much power. He's He's got an unprecedented amount of power. And uh, it's to me, it's it's pretty serious. It's pretty creepy and serious because if you just look at the, the kind of behavior that has been um, essentially enforced and propagated by social networks over the last 18 months, whether or not that behavior has been justified... That behavior has been instigated by social media, which is eerie, you know? The other thing I really don't like about Facebook is they don't use Linkerd. <laughs> Are you sure? Do you, do, you, do you even know? Do you even know? They probably forked it. Yeah, probably. Probably fork it and mess it up, man. Probably. Yeah. They wouldn't call it a service mesh. They would call it a service network or a service social network. Uh, you know, I think we did talk to some Facebook engineers in the very early days of of Buoyant, and there there were equivalents to Linkerd that they had in place, which you know maybe now have been totally replaced. But you know that pattern, the pattern that Linkerd plays is is a common one, especially for those companies that built those microservices architectures early on. But in terms of like, yeah, you know, if if they were heavy Linkerd users, maybe we could help you take them down somehow. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Badly. Yeah. I don't know we how can, much power I have. We here. Can, no, 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 no. We can threaten to increase in their uh, their Linkerd license fees if they don't uh, release React to the Linux Foundation. We'll have to quickly make a Linkerd license, and then <laughs> yeah, I'm sure this is where the Linux Foundation will start getting involved. You know. Okay, let's let's talk about like enterprise software sales and stuff. Oh gosh, um, oh, <laughs> so much more boring. Okay, or we don't have to. I don't know. Hey, by the way, are you are you going to KubeCon LA? My current plan is to go, but you know, there's a big question mark that seems to be growing bigger every day around Delta variant and is there going to be an in-person KubeCon or not? Right now, last I heard, still hybrid is still the plan, and I'm like desperate for an in-person event. Oh, me too. But. Yeah, I'm kind of watching. Listen, 
if it gets canceled, let's just rent like a Luby's cafeteria and have a mini KubeCon at the cafeteria in LA. Well, that's a great idea. You know, I don't know if they have Luby's in LA. Also, Luby's went out of business, didn't it? Probably. Yeah, I think it did recently. There's like an why, abandoned. Why did, why, did we, why did we like Luby's? Why did anybody like Luby's? I mean, I went there when I was a kid, and that's why I, <laughs> I think that your brain gets programmed to like things that you experience when you're kids. And maybe, yeah, I, I don't know if it was ever any good. <laughs> you know, yeah. I never went back when I was an adult. Yeah, it was fried okra, macaroni and cheese, chocolate milk, fried chicken. Mm hmm. Pretty disgusting. Black eyed peas, pretty disgusting. Jello pudding for dessert. Fried steak. <laughs> God. Technology is not the only thing that's improved over the last, whatever, 20, 25 years. I think our understanding of nutrition has improved a fair amount. By the way, I think I sent you an email. Did you go to Schlitterbahn yet? No. It's on the list. I haven't been there yet. Oh, okay. Uh, what about Enchanted Rock? Enchanted Rock? No. I haven't what, done anything. What? We've just what? like stayed in our house, man. Enchanted Rock is outdoors. It's an outdoors place. Oh, all right. Well, that's a little easier than Enchanted Rock. It's also like awesome. a thousand degrees here in Austin, you know, so. <laughs> you better get used to it. You moved there. Well, I'm going to wait for it to cool down a bit before I go outside. I guess. What about stand-up stand paddleboarding? Looks really fun. It's so fun. It's not even hard. It looks hard. It's not even hard. I did it a few weeks ago. I did it for the first time a few weeks ago. I never did it when I was in, when I was in Austin. But now, whenever I go to Austin, I'm going to stand up paddleboard. It's amazing. We kayaked down the river, and that was a lot of fun. And I saw people stand up paddleboarding, and yeah, it's easy. It's actually easy. It's actually as easy as kayaking, and much more fun. Right. Um, kayaking was easy. Was it fun? Eh, it's funish. Are you in a in a town lake uh, adjacent area or like a uh, further from town lake adjacent area or further from town lake area or Ladybird Lake I should say? It's probably ten fifteen minute drive from where we are. We're out in the okay. Bridge, but... okay. Okay, got That's it, got it. I feel like North Austin is the best place to set up shop these days. South Austin's pretty good too. Central Austin's super congested. Anyway. What can we? What should we talk about? What's buoyant related? That well, we can. We can I mean, we can talk about enterprise sales and stuff, man. If you want to, I'll try and. I mean, make what it what does what does like a large uh, linker D deal look like, or buoyant deal look like? Yeah. So for us, you know, the thing that it's it's all bottoms up, right? They they install the agent, some stuff happens, and then eventually they realize, okay, we need actually best in class enterprise support. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, as much as possible. Linkerd adoption is bottom up. That's by design, you know, and it's also like that's a model that I understand. It's a model that works well with like open source infrastructure. Possibly the only model that makes sense with open source infrastructure. So, you know, the the trick is for us has been okay with Linkerd. We want to give you, you know, we don't want to hold back any features. We want to give you everything you need to run this thing in production, right? And it should never be like I can only get this far, and then to get to go from here, I have to, you know, buy a Linkerd Plus or whatever. Like that's just not the model that that we want to do. But then it turns out there are actually these challenges, very specific challenges for like enterprise operation. You know, like one one obvious one is like a lot of times companies will not adopt open source unless there's support in place. Okay, great. Well, like that's something that you can provide, and that's something you can you can and should charge for because. It's not like a free service, you know, human beings have to provide that support. And then there's other features too. They're like, well, gosh, you know, we've got this weird security, like these set of security requirements, 
And like the open source doesn't like quite match into that. You know, it's not because Linkerd is insecure. It's just because we have these requirements that have been developed in this very specific way. Can you give us a way of meeting those requirements with Linkerd? Okay, great. Like that's something we can do, you know? And then the stuff that I get excited about is, you know, when people really start adopting Linkerd and they're like, you know what, we don't, this is awesome. And it, it's great that it's so like simple, whatever, but we don't actually want to do any work here, right? We, we want to have the service mesh and we don't want to operate. We don't want to have a person who, you know, we have to worry about if they go on vacation or whatever. So can we actually allow you to operate this for us? Can you, can you like take over, you know, and that's where things get really interesting for us because self, self-driving, self-driving. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And if you look at open source and the business models, that makes sense. Like the one that makes a lot of sense, especially in the modern world is like the SaaS kind of hosted model, right? We'll host this product for you. For Linkerd, we can't really host it entirely for you because there are bits that have to run on your cluster. We can host a whole bunch of it for you, right? And then we can make it so that that operational burden, which is a real cost of software, right? That, that comes on to us. And we're experts, by the way. We're really good at running Linkerd. <laughs> and then you get the value, right? And you pay us money, which is good for everyone. And we're, but we're incurring the operational burden, right? And that way, you as a company can focus on what you really want to focus on, which is not being service mesh experts, right? You want to focus on your business, right? What are the things that you should be doing to advance your the mission of your company to advance your agenda, to advance your products and, you know, to serve your customers. And unless you're a company like Buoyant, that is not the service mesh, right? Being service mesh experts is like, no one should be no one's job, you know, except for companies that are selling service mesh expertise, right? Which is like a handful. So that's, that's kind of, you know, where we end up being able to provide commercial value. It's not in like the raw technology, but it's like, how do I fit this technology into this existing business structure that has these, you know, constraints and is not trying to become a service mesh expert anyways. Moments of profound, when you're exposed to moments of profound genius, you know, sometimes it takes. I know. No, no, no. That's, that's, it's not, I'm just thinking, uh, there's, I'm just, I'm just right-sizing my question for the next six minutes. The time always flies with you. I hope we can do this again in LA, by the way. But so let's talk a little bit about like kind of go to market strategy relative to fundraising in the last six minutes. So you've done, so you've been around for more than six years and you've only raised an A, which is unusual. Just tell me about your fundraising strategy or your just burn rate strategy because you've clearly kind of taken your own path. This is a little bit different than the, eight, than the typical 18-month burn rate strategy. What are you thinking there? Yeah, so, you know, fundraising is is not a goal for anyone. It should never be a goal. It's a means to an end, right? Like what you are doing, what you should be doing is trying to build a sustainable, large-scale business, right? And that's, that, that is my goal with Buoyant is to build a company, you know, IPO it, have a massive, you know, impact on the world in a positive way. Don't do any of the Facebook stuff, you know, and fundraising is one tool along, you know, along that path. Other tools include like making money, generating revenue, right? Like, and so for us, you know, for open source, especially, I think the model of like every 18 months, we fundraise, we fundraise, we fundraise. I think that makes sense for, for SaaS companies, or at least that has come out of like the world of SaaS companies because they're 
you know, you have a burn rate that, you know, you're, you're operating, you know, you're paying your AWS bill and whatever else. And like, you, you almost have to do that. Right. And you're being judged by these almost scientific standards at each point, right. For open source, it's really different, you know, and it's much less of a science. It's much more of like, you know, you've got some of that consumer magic in there. Like you want to get the lightning in the bottle. You want to see that thing spark, right. Either the community is like growing rapidly and self-perpetuating, or it's just like, you know, shriveling up and dying. And so early on, especially, we kept burn rates super, super low because what we were doing was not like anything revenue generating. I was like investing in the open source community. Okay, that's going to pay off in the long run, right? But that's a that's a long-term play. If you're doing a long-term play, then like you don't want to end up, you know, hitting against some short-term walls. So that's really what it comes down to, you know, for open source, especially infrastructure open source, it takes time you know, for that to, to, to happen. And we're seeing it now with Linkerd, you know, we just graduated in the CNCF. It's like the top tier of project maturity. So it's up there with like Kubernetes and Prometheus and Envoy, you know, and like the community is going gangbusters. We're having people come to Linkerd from Istio, like in these very public ways. So all of that is just happening right now. And that has a very different dynamic from where we were in the, in the, in the early days when a lot of what we were doing, like I was saying, was just investing in community with the idea that it was going to pay off in a couple more years. So Got we it. took all that beautiful money and, you know, fortunate, we've been very fortunate in that it's been relatively, you know, relative to other companies, it has been easy for us to fundraise for a variety of reasons. Obviously my visionary genius just kind of awes and astonishes anyone who ever talks to me. So like that's you know, you're you're deflect you're deflective, but everybody that knows you knows you're good. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, you, you come on, how many companies have stuck around for six and whatever, six and six years and change? Um, I'm sure you could have sold by now, right? Like I mean, you must have a bigger vision, right? Which is basically networking and beyond it's it, you know there's your tam is just gigantic it's really really big yeah that's right I and mean, i think what we're doing with linkerd is so fundamental to how people yeah build build today and 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 and, 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 and 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 the thing is like today it looks like oh i have to integrate with or maybe maybe today it doesn't even look this way three years ago four years ago whenever we start talking about this stuff integrate with linkerd eventually it's going to be like one click you choose linkerd or one click choose istio once it's at that point, then it's a UX thing. And which you which UX do you want the most? Like at this point, it, I mean, I love Varun. I just talked to Varun over at uh, over at Tetrate. I think he's got he's kind of got a different demographic for who he's marketing to. You look at the Tetrate website versus the the Buoyant website. It's quite obvious they're marketing to a different kind of customer. I mean, yeah, I, I think it all relates to my, you know, kind of my core hypothesis, which is that the future of software adoption, even in the enterprise, is bottom-up adoption. And if you don't have that, you know, sorted out, and if you don't have, this, you know, that in a place that you can control it, then you know you're going to have a short-term company, not a long-term company. And I think that's a big difference. This is again another thing I really like about HashiCorp is they control, you know, their projects are open source, but they control that core technology. Right. For the most part, you know, console connect uses Envoy and like they kind of they have no control over, you know, kind of that. But in contrast to the Istio vendors, like they don't have any real control over the core technology. Right. They're kind of at the whim of Google's roadmap or, or whatever, IBM's roadmap. And in here, just just to bring it back, I know we're, I know we're out of time, basically, but I think it's worth pointing out that if HashiCorp had ReactJS, if HashiCorp made ReactJS, 
I don't think we would have much of a problem here because everybody trusts them. You know, it's just simply a matter of trust. You look at those guys, you look at the way they've operated their company, you can listen back to their hundreds of podcast interviews, and, and you know that they're trustworthy. There's a deep thing here where the way that you become a successful open source company involves having a very trusting relationship with your engineers, you know, and with your adopters. And that's very different from kind of the standard consumer relationships. Like, you know, I, I have cell phone service from Verizon. Do I trust Verizon? Like, no, I don't, like, yeah. I don't trust them to ever look out for my best interest. But if I'm adopting like open source technology, if someone adopts Linkerd, they want to, you know, they're, they're not going to do that if, if it's sketchy. Right, like you're running this code on your on like your system, so there's a very different kind of relationship that you have to develop with your adopter in the open source world that comes down to trust. I think there's something profound there. Okay, um, last question, just because we didn't really tackle any tough engineering stuff. What's the hardest technical problem that you've had to work on since we last spoke? I think I talked to you last. You were in that that office atop Market Street, so that was probably two and a, two and a half years ago or something like that. It was a long time. Yeah. Hardest technical challenge. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I think back then, by the way, your your biggest challenges were UX related because you were working on the the service social network, <laughs> which is which is a huge product category that we can't, we don't we haven't even had time to talk about today. Right. Yeah. I think for us, the hardest technology challenges continue to be at the proxy layer for us. So you Thank know, Linkerd is very unique. It has this Rust based micro proxy, just called Linkerd proxy. I've written articles about this. It's like, it's very different from the envoys of the world. And it's very specifically designed, you know, to be different because a lot of the complexity in many other service meshes comes from their choice of envoy. Not because envoy is bad, but because envoy is complex, right? So we want to avoid all that. So we have this amazing proxy, but like that is hard technology. You need to be a serious technologist in order to make this proxy that is ultra lightweight and ultra fast you know, and secure, you know, and is sitting at, at kind of the, the very leading edge of Rust and like network programming and Kubernetes and like running things in containerized environments. That is a very, very advanced, you know, I, I would say, and I have said, I think Linkerd2 proxy is the most technologically advanced project anywhere in the CNCF. I think it's just like the brain power that goes into that thing is really astonishing. Mm. So that's not a specific challenge. That's like a continuing challenge. All right. Foreshadowing for either our uh, our KubeCon LA talk or we can do another remote episode. Or if you want to pair me with, uh, if you got some some engineer who's been uh, cracking on that stuff, I'd love to go deep on on those networking challenges. Yeah. Oliver would be the great person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, awesome. that's great. So you guys have stuck together for six and a half years. Best buds. Have you guys gone to like a, a relationship count? Actually, you know, I, I shouldn't even ask this question. I won't ask this question on air. I, I, I'll just say, if I had done six and a half years with a co-founder, I probably would have gone to, uh, seriously, I probably would have gone to a therapist with them at some point. I'm sure you get into enough vociferous arguments that... I think um, it's to Oliver's credit that he's managed to survive six, six years of <laughs> me. It's definitely to his... But you, you, you basically have to be mercurial. If you're a successful founder, you have to be mercurial, right? Who is, who is not? What founder is not Mercurial? Interesting. I never thought about that. I was, I, I've been trying to be honest and transparent, but I guess I could be Mercurial. <laughs> you could be all three. William, pleasure as always. My friend, I hope to see you in LA. Seriously. And if not, we'll, we'll do another show. <laughs>